Section six of the Journals of Robert Falcon Scott by Robert Falcon Scott, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. Section six. Chapter three. Land. Part one. Saturday, December the thirty first, New Year's Eve. Observations seventy two degrees fifty four minutes south. 174 degrees 55 minutes east, made good south, 45 west, 55 minutes, Cape Crozier, south, 17 west, 286 minutes. The New Year's Eve found us in the Ross Sea, but not at the end of our misfortunes. We had a horrible night. In the first watch we kept away two points and set fore and aft sail. It did not increase our comfort, but gave us greater speed. The night dragged slowly through. I could not sleep, thinking of the sore strait for our wretched ponies. In the morning watch the wind and sea increased, and the outlook was very distressing, but at six ice was sighted ahead. Under ordinary conditions the safe course would have been to go about and stand to the east, but in our case we must risk trouble to get smoother water for the ponies. We passed a stream of ice over which the sea was breaking heavily, and one realised the danger of being amongst loose flows in such a sea. But soon we came to a compacter body of flows, and running behind this we were agreeably surprised to find comparatively smooth water. We ran on for a bit, then stopped and lay to. Now we are lying in a sort of ice bay. There is a mile or so of pack to windward, and two horns which form the bay embracing us. The sea is damped down to a gentle swell, although the wind is as strong as ever. As a result we are lying very comfortably. The ice is drifting a little faster than the ship, so we have occasionally to steam slowly to leeward. So far so good. From a dangerous position we have achieved one which only directly involved a waste of coal. The question is, which will last longest, the gale or our temporary shelter? Rennick has just obtained a sounding of 187 fathoms, taken in conjunction with yesterday's 1,111 fathoms, and Ross's sounding of 180. This is interesting, showing the rapid gradient of the continental shelf. Nelson is going to put over the eight-foot Agassiz trawl. Unfortunately, we could not clear the line for the trawl. It is stowed under the fodder. A light dredge was tried on a small manila line. Very little result. First the weights were insufficient to carry it to the bottom, a second time, with more weight and line, it seems to have touched for a very short time only. There was little of value in the catch, but the biologists are learning the difficulties of the situation. Evening. Our protection grew less as the day advanced, but saved us much from the heavy swell. At 8 p.m. we started to steam west to gain fresh protection, there being signs of pack to south and west. The swell is again diminishing. The wind which started south yesterday has gone to south-south-west, true. The main swell in from south-east by south, or south-south-east. There seems to be another from the south, but none from the direction from which the wind is now blowing. The wind has been getting squally. Now the squalls are lessening in force. The sky is clearing, and we seem to be approaching the end of the blow. I trust it may be so, and that the new year will bring us better fortune than the old. If so, it'll be some pleasure to write 1910 for the last time. Lando. At 10 p.m. tonight, 
as the clouds lifted to the west a distant but splendid view of the great mountains was obtained all were in sunshine sabine and werewell were most conspicuous the latter from this view is a beautiful sharp peak as remarkable a landmark as sabine itself mount sabine was a hundred and ten miles away when we saw it i believe we could have seen it at a distance of thirty or forty miles farther such is the wonderful clearness of the atmosphere finis nineteen ten nineteen eleven sunday january the first observations seventy three degrees five minutes south one hundred and seventy four degrees eleven minutes east made good south forty eight west thirteen point four cape crozier south fifteen west two hundred and seventy seven minutes at four a m we proceeded steaming slowly to the south-east the wind having gone to the south-west and fallen to force three as we cleared the ice we headed into a short steep swell and for some hours the ship pitched most uncomfortably at eight a m the ship was clear of the ice and headed south with four and a half sail set she is lying easier on this course but there is still a good deal of motion and would be more if we attempted to increase speed Oates reports that the ponies are taking it pretty well. Soon after 8 a.m. the sky cleared, and we have had brilliant sunshine throughout the day. The wind came from the northwest this forenoon, but has dropped during the afternoon. We increased to 55 revolutions at 10 a.m. The swell is subsiding, but not so quickly as I had expected. Tonight it is absolutely calm, with glorious bright sunshine. Several people were sunning themselves at 11 o'clock, sitting on deck and reading. The land is clear tonight. Coolman Island, seventy-five miles west. Sounding at seven p.m., one hundred and eighty-seven fathoms. Sounding at four a.m., three hundred and ten fathoms. Monday, January the second. Observations: seventy-five degrees three minutes, one hundred and seventy-three degrees forty-one minutes. Made good south, three west, one hundred and nineteen minutes. Cape Crozier south, twenty-two west. 159 minutes. It has been a glorious night, followed by a glorious forenoon. The sun has been shining almost continuously. Several of us drew a bucket of sea-water and had a bath with salt-water soap on the deck. The water was cold, of course, but it was quite pleasant to dry oneself in the sun. The deck-bathing habit has fallen off since we crossed the Antarctic Circle, but Bowers has kept going in all weathers. There is still a good deal of swell, difficult to understand after a day's calm, and less than two hundred miles of water to windward. Wilson saw and sketched the new white-stomached whale seen by us in the pack. At eight-thirty we sighted Mount Erebus, distant about a hundred and fifteen miles. The sky is covered with light cumulus, and an easterly wind has sprung up, force two to three. With all sails set we are making very good progress. Tuesday, January the third, ten a.m. The conditions are very much the same as last night. We are only twenty-four miles from Cape Crozier, and the land is showing up well, though Erebus is veiled in stratus cloud. It looks finer to the south, and we may run into sunshine soon, but the wind is alarming, and there is a slight swell which has little effect on the ship, but makes all the difference to our landing. For the moment it doesn't look hopeful. We have been continuing our line of soundings. From the bank we crossed in latitude 71 degrees, the water has gradually got deeper, and we are now getting 310 to 350 fathoms against 180 on the bank. The discovery soundings give depths of up to 450 fathoms east of Ross Island. 
6 p.m. No good. Alas! Cape Crozier, with all its attractions, is denied us. We came up to the barrier five miles east of the Cape soon after 1 p.m. The swell from the east-northeast continued to the end. The barrier was not more than 60 feet in height. From the crow's nest one could see well over it, and noted that there was a gentle slope for at least a mile towards the edge. The land of black, or white, island could be seen distinctly behind, topping the huge lines of pressure ridges. We plotted the barrier edge from the point at which we met it to the Crozier Cliffs. To the eye it seems scarcely to have changed since discovery days, and Wilson thinks it meets the cliff in the same place. The barrier takes a sharp turn back at two or three miles from the cliffs, runs back for half a mile, then west again with a fairly regular surface until within a few hundred yards of the cliffs. The interval is occupied with a single high-pressure ridge, the evidences of pressure at the edge being less marked than I had expected. Ponting was very busy with cinematograph and camera. In the angle at the corner near the cliffs, Rennick got a sounding of 140 fathoms, and Nelson some temperatures and samples. When lowering the water bottle on one occasion, the line suddenly became slack at a hundred metres, then, after a moment's pause, began to run out again. We are curious to know the cause, and imagine the bottle struck a seal or whale. Meanwhile, one of the whale-boats was lowered, and Wilson, Griffith, Taylor, Priestley, Evans, and I were pulled towards the shore. The afterguard are so keen that the proper boat's crew was displaced, and the oars manned by Oates, Atkinson, and Cherry Garrard, the latter catching several crabs. The swell made it impossible for us to land. I had hoped to see whether there was room to pass between the pressure ridge and the cliff, a route by which Royds once descended to the Emperor Rookery. As we approached the corner we saw that a large piece of sea-flow ice had been jammed between the barrier and the cliff, and had buckled up till its under-surface stood three or four feet above the water. On top of this old flow we saw an old emperor molting, and a young one shedding its down. The down had come off the head and flippers, and commenced to come off the breast in a vertical line similar to the ordinary molt. This is an age and stage of development of the emperor chick of which we have no knowledge, and it would have been a triumph to have secured the chick, but alas, there was no way to get at it. Another most curious sight was the feet and tails of two chicks, and the flipper of an adult bird projecting from the ice on the underside of the jam flow. They had evidently been frozen in above, and were being washed out under the flow. Finding it impossible to land owing to the swell, we pulled along the cliffs for a short way. These crozier cliffs are remarkably interesting. The rock, mainly volcanic tuff, includes thick strata of columnar basalt, and one could see beautiful designs of jammed and twisted columns, as well as caves with whole and half pillars, very much like a miniature giant's causeway. Bands of bright yellow occurred in the rich brown of the cliffs, caused, the geologists think, by the action of salts on the brown rock. In places the cliffs overhung, in places the sea had eaten long low caves deep under them, and continued to break into them over a shelving beach. Icicles hung pendant everywhere, and from one fringe a continuous trickle of thaw-water had swollen to a miniature waterfall. It was like a big hose playing over the cliff edge. We noticed a very clear echo as we passed close to a perpendicular rock face. Later we returned to the ship, which had been trying to turn in the bay. She is not very satisfactory in this respect, owing to the difficulty of starting the engines either ahead or astern. 
several minutes often elapse after the telegraph has been put over before there is any movement of the engines it makes the position rather alarming when one is feeling one's way into some doubtful corner when the whaler was hoisted we proceeded round to the penguin rookery hopes of finding a quiet landing had now almost disappeared there were several small grounded bergs close to the rookery going close to these we got repeated soundings varying from thirty-four down to twelve fathoms there is evidently a fairly extensive bank at the foot of the rookery there is probably good anchorage behind some of the bergs but none of these afford shelter for landing on the beach on which the sea is now breaking incessantly it would have taken weeks to land the ordinary stores and heaven only knows how we could have got the ponies and motor sledges ashore reluctantly and sadly we have had to abandon our cherished plan it is a thousand pities every detail of the shore promised well for a wintering party comfortable quarters for the hut ice for water snow for the animals good slopes for skiing vast tracts of rock for walks proximity to the barrier and to the rookeries of two types of penguins easy ascent of mount terror good ground for biological work good peaks for observation of all sorts fairly easy approach to the southern road with no chance of being cut off and so forth it is a thousand pities to have to abandon such a spot on passing the rookery it seemed to me we had been wrong in assuming that all the guano is blown away i think there must be a pretty good deposit in places the penguins could be seen very clearly from the ship on the large rookery they occupy an immense acreage and one imagines have extended as far as shelter can be found but on the small rookery they are patchy and there seems ample room for further extension of the colonies such unused spaces would have been ideal for a wintering station if only some easy way could have been found to land stores i noted many groups of penguins on the snow slopes overlooking the sea far from the rookeries and one finds it difficult to understand why they meander away to such places a number of killer whales rose close to the ship when we were opposite the rookery what an excellent time these animals must have with thousands of penguins passing to and fro we saw our old discovery post-office pole sticking up as erect as when planted and we have been comparing all we have seen with old photographs no change at all seems to have taken place anywhere and this is very surprising in the case of the barrier edge from the penguin rookeries to the west it is a relentless coast with high ice cliffs and occasional bare patches of rock showing through even if landing were possible the grimmest crevassed snow slopes lie behind to cut one off from the barrier surface there is no hope of shelter till we reach cape roids meanwhile all hands are employed making a running survey i give an idea of the programme opposite terror cleared itself of clouds some hours ago and we have had some change of views in it it is quite certain that the ascent will be easy the bay on the north side of erebus is much deeper than shown on the chart the sun has been obstinate all day peeping out occasionally and then shyly retiring it makes a great difference to comfort program bruce continually checking speed with hand log bowers taking altitudes of objects as they come abeam nelson noting results pennell taking verge plate bearings on bow and quarter cherry garrard noting results evans taking verge plate bearings abeam atkinson noting results Campbell taking distances abeam with rangefinder, Wright noting results, Rennick sounding with Thompson machine, Drake noting results. Beaufort Island looks very black from the south. Ten thirty, 
we find pack off Cape Bird. We have passed through some streams, and there is some open water ahead, but I am afraid we may find the ice pretty thick in the strait at this date. Wednesday, January the 4th, 1 a.m. We are around Cape Bird, and in sight of our destination, but it is doubtful if the open water extends so far. We have advanced, following an open water lead, close along the land. Cape Bird is a very rounded promontory, with many headlands. It is not easy to say which of these is the Cape. The same grim, unattainable ice-clad coastline extends continuously from the Cape Crozier Rookery to Cape Bird. West of Cape Bird there is a very extensive expanse of land, and on it one larger and several small penguin rookeries. On the uniform dark reddish-brown of the land can be seen numerous grey spots. These are erratic boulders of granite. Through glasses one could be seen perched on a peak at least thirteen hundred feet above the sea. Another group of killer whales were idly diving off the penguin rookery, an old one with a very high straight dorsal fin and several youngsters. We watched a small party of penguins leaping through the water towards their enemies. It seemed impossible that they should have failed to see the sinister fins during their frequent jumps into the air, yet they seemed to take no notice whatever. Stranger still, the penguins must have actually crossed the whales, yet there was no commotion whatever, and presently the small birds could be seen leaping away on the other side. One can only suppose the whales were satiated. As we rounded Cape Bird, we came in sight of the old, well-remembered landmarks, Mount Discovery and the Western Mountains, seen dimly through a hazy atmosphere. It was good to see them again, and perhaps, after all, we are better this side of the island. It gives one a homely feeling to see such a familiar scene. 4 a.m. The steep, exposed hillsides on the west side of Cape Bird look like high cliffs as one gets south of them, and form a most conspicuous landmark. We push past these cliffs into streams of heavy bay ice, making fair progress. As we proceeded, the lanes became scarcer, the flows heavier, but the latter remained loose. Many of us spent the night on deck as we pushed through the pack. We have passed some very large flows, evidently frozen in the strait. This is curious, as all previous evidence has pointed to the clearance of ice sheets north of Cape Royds early in the spring. I have observed several flows with an entirely new type of surface, they are covered with scales, each scale consisting of a number of little flaky ice-sheets superimposed, and all dipping at the same angle. It suggests to me a surface with sustrugi and layers of fine dust on which the snow has taken hold. We are within five miles of Cape Royds and ought to get there. Wednesday, January the 4th, p.m. This work is full of surprises. At 6 a.m. we came through the last of the straight pack, some three miles north of Cape Royds. We steered for the Cape, fully expecting to find the edge of the pack-ice ranged westward from it. To our astonishment, we ran on past the Cape with clear water, or thin sludge ice, on all sides of us. Past Cape Royds, past Cape Barn, past the glacier on its south side, and finally round and past Inaccessible Island, a good two miles south of Cape Royds. The Cape itself was cut off from the south. We could have gone farther but the last sludge ice seemed to be increasing in thickness, and there was no wintering spot to aim for, but Cape Armitage. I have never seen the ice of the Sound in such a condition, or the land so free from snow. Taking these facts in conjunction with the exceptional warmth of the air, I came to the conclusion that it had been an exceptionally warm summer. At this point it was evident that we had a considerable choice of wintering spots. 
we could have gone to either of the small islands, to the mainland, the glacier tongue, or pretty well anywhere except Hut Point. My main wish was to choose a place which would not be easily cut off from the barrier, and my eye fell on a cape which we used to call the Skewery, a little behind us. It was separated from the old discovery quarters by two deep bays on either side of the glacier tongue, and I thought that these bays would remain frozen until late in the season, and that when they froze over again the ice would soon become firm. I called a council and put these propositions. To push on to the glacier tongue and winter there, to push west to the tombstone ice and make our way to an inviting spot to the northward of the cape we used to call the Skewery. I favoured the latter course, and on discussion we found it obviously the best. So we turned back, close around Inaccessible Island, and steered for the fast ice, off the cape at full speed. After piercing a small fringe of thin ice at the edge of the fast flow, the ship's stern struck heavily on hard bay ice about a mile and a half from the shore. Here was a road to the cape, and a solid wharf on which to land our stores. We made fast with ice anchors. Wilson, Evans, and I went to the Cape, which I had now rechristened Cape Evans, in honour of our excellent second-in-command. A glance at the land showed, as we expected, ideal spots for our wintering station. The rock of the Cape consists mainly of volcanic agglomerate, with olivine kenite. It is much weathered, and the destruction has formed quantities of coarse sand. We chose a spot for the hut, on a beach facing northwest, and well protected by numerous small hills behind. This spot seems to have all the local advantages, which I must detail later, for a winter station, and we realised that at length our luck had turned. The most favourable circumstance of all is the strong chance of communication with Cape Armitage being established at an early date. It was in connection with this fact that I had had such a strong desire to go to Mount Terra, and such misgivings if we had been forced to go to Cape Royds. It is quite evident that the ice south of Cape Royds does not become secure until late in the season, probably in May. Before that, all evidence seems to show that the part between Cape Royds and Cape Barn is continually going out. How, I ask myself, was our depot party to get back to home quarters? I feel confident we can get to the new spot we have chosen at a comparatively early date. It will probably only be necessary to cross the sea ice in the deep bays north and south of the Glacier Tongue, and the ice rarely goes out of there after it is first formed. Even if it should, both stages can be seen before the party ventures upon them. End of chapter 3, part 1